So I took it to the Supreme Court, ended up not taking the edible case because they created legislation. They created legislation. It was such an uproar about it. They created legislation to actually rechange the law to count edibles as marijuana. But when they did legislation, it didn't change my case. So I still had to go back and actually go like to court and like fight this case. That case went on for like eight years. I actually overstayed my probation. But because I already went to jail and technically I was served and also my sentence was the jail sentence, which was like 35 days in jail and five years probation. Usually you make it a year probation too. Oh no, they're, they're sticking to me. So I already outlived my five years probation this entire time. Couldn't consume, piss test here and there, doing all this stuff every single day, going through this. While if I got in trouble while I was on five years, oh man, I would have been, you know, throw away the key. So, but the whole time, eight years later, you know, we're going back. I'm going, no, let's go back to trial. Let's go. Let's go to trial. Because you can't do nothing to me. I already been sentenced. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host, Shada Taravi, and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And I'm so glad you're here with me for another episode on the podcast. Today, we are sitting down with Earl Carruthers. He has a really powerful story that isn't your typical marketing conversation. Why I wanted to highlight Earl's journey is because for most of us, we are operating in an extremely unknown environment. While cannabis is legal in some 19 states, there are still states that are just scratching the surface with hemp, like Texas. And so our laws and regulations are still in limbo, trying to sort out how things are going to turn out. Not to mention the challenges states experience once legality hits. There's still no blueprint for our industry, and Earl has been a pioneer in cannabis, representing Michigan, and even influencing the state's legal definition of edibles through the Michigan Supreme Court. I hope Earl's story will help empower you because for any of us who are working or considering to work in the industry, we need to be prepared for how to face these adversities. I will say though, despite the challenges Earl has had to go through, he has a very empathetic heart for the industry and for his community, which has been the beating drum for his advocacy on cannabis. So without further ado, let's welcome Earl to the show. My name is Earl. It's Earl Cantrell. Earl Cantrell Carruthers. Yeah, it was kind of a unorthodox way of getting into the industry. After playing football in high school, well, three sports, uh, track, football, high school, I ended up cracking my pelvis. We actually have that in common. I actually tra- uh, cracked my pelvis in track uh, the year I was going into college. And I ended up playing all four years of college with a cracked pelvis. Because that's pretty much how I had to earn my scholarship, was actually play. So I played and just naturally... I kind of stayed away from drugs, from the D.A.R.E. campaign. I you know, didn't really drink in high school. I mean, drunk maybe once or twice on prom, something like that. I definitely did not smoke marijuana. Reefer Madness was real. I thought if I smoked marijuana, I would catch a case with a girl. So I did not want that to happen. And sports was, I mean, I wanted to play in a league. You know, I wanted to play football, basketball, track or something. Yeah, so after 
not really wanted to take opioids in college. I wanted to kind of naturally deal with the pain. And I tried many different remedies. Nothing was really strong enough, but it was still manageable. I still took, you know, ibuprofens, things like that, but nothing as far as like some of the Oxycontins or anything like that, that I was actually prescribed. So after graduating college, I actually got a job as a financial advisor and banker with JP Morgan. I had a degree in finance and just naturally became a banker and was pretty much very successful, but it just wasn't me. I was making a good amount of money coming out of college. I had a nice car, but just naturally, I, I just kind of wanted to be a entrepreneur. So you know, I started reading different books and actually came across Four Hour Work Week and kind of from Tim Ferriss and wanted to find a product that could kind of be my horse, my muse, that will kind of, I could have this business, a product-based business and allow me to do other things. I wanted to coach young kids in football. I wanted to be able to speak to young kids and, and youth. So I, cause I came up from a background that we didn't really learn how to think. We were learning you know, math or science or things like that, but not really how to deal with issues at home, how to think and grow as a person. So I wanted to kind of get into that. And then after Googling and looking into different sports-based natural remedies, I came across marijuana. And this is around 2008, 2009. Michigan became medical, 2008, 2009. So there was a lot of information now on Google about medical marijuana. And again, I was like, what? Cannabis anti-inflammatory? What the heck are they talking about? So I started reading more, reading more, and ended up taking a course. There was, at this time, a six-week course here in Michigan that would taught you about the history of cannabis, going through books like Smoke Signals as well. I think you actually have an episode about that, about the history of, of cannabis. And went fast forward as to Cannabis Today in Michigan, what was legal, what was not, and the different opportunities. And I was like, wow, I'm going to try this out. I went and got my medical card here in Michigan. Uh, you could be a patient and a caregiver for yourself and for up to five other people, meaning you can grow for 12 for yourself and you can possess two and a half ounces for yourself. And then you can do that for five other people as well. So 12 times five is 60 plus my 12. I can grow 72 plants. And then I could have 15 ounces on me at any single time. So I saw that as opportunity. And at that time, I start delivery services, started to open brick and mortar clinics, per se. We call ourselves collectors. I mean, you can call it a dispensary, which is what a common person will understand. You go in, you can you know, acquire cannabis and leave. But it was more of a clinic type style. It wasn't like a Starbucks with a big sign that said, you know, come here, we have week. So after starting a delivery service, and unlearning all that reefer madness and understanding, man, I quit my job, went, started growing, grew more than my patients could consume. And what that here in Michigan was called was kind of overages because it talked about what you can grow, but what do you do with all the extra that you grow, especially if you're growing 72 plants? So people started a business with that. So I ended up starting a delivery business. And from a business background, I made sure I had good customer service, reasonable prices. I was knowledgeable about the product. I was friendly and I was on time. A lot of people ran these businesses as like a hustle. Like, yeah, yeah, I'll be there in about an hour. And it's like eight hours later, like, where are you at? So, <laughs> no, I was on time professional. So I got a lot of calls. I got more calls than I could actually take. So I ended up turning my, also around the same time, I started a credit repair business after I left the bank. I turned one of my offices, my credit repair business into like a, a clinic where I would take appointments where people would come in uh, by appointment only. You call or text or I will also deliver. And then I couldn't get to our deliveries and appointments and I'm hiring someone to run my front desk and I'm hiring someone to do the deliveries. The next thing you know, I have a full-blown operation. 
And then I get pulled over and I got arrested. I got arrested while I was doing a delivery. And this was my first encounter. Again, I went into banking, had no blemishes, degree, see things on TV, but you know, that's them, not me. But this was my first experience of really driving while black. I got pulled over because my lights are off and there's no excuse, but I got valet parking. They turned off my lights. I thought it was, you know, I'm not getting to my car. It's usually automatic. I never think about turning on my lights. Went like five miles. No one flicked me until I got flipped by the police that my lights were off. I got pulled over and I wasn't smoking, wasn't drinking. And at the time, my business was very successful. I had another car. I had a Corvette that had tenant windows and I had a ticket. My tenant window ended up paying it a couple of days late, but apparently I didn't pay the whole ticket. So there was like a hold on my license. So they pulled me over. Oh, you got a hold on your license. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, but I you know, didn't know that. I guess you can give me a ticket for that. And then you know, I can go up, I'll be about my way. Or um, well, they said they take me out the car, which I also was driving with a young lady. I was on a date and she was with me. You could at least, you know, let her drive a car and just give me a ticket and go. No, not that. Take her out the car as well. And he started to, they took both of us in the back of two different cars, ended up searching the entire car. And mind you, I have a delivery business, but I kept everything in my book bag in the back of my trunk. And it was in mason jars, nothing was smelling. And I had a couple dozen brownies. So I had about seven ounces of flour, had a couple dozen brownies. And they ended up searching the car, finding that. And also had my paperwork. I had all my caregiver paperwork, all my license paperwork to show what I could possess. This is early around 2010. So it was still anti-cannabis in some areas and still pro-cannabis in some. And cops still weren't trained on, wow, this is something new. It was kind of like, we're going to treat it the same way that we treat just marijuana. So they end up planting some weed in the lady's purse. And this is all on tape, actually, because I went to trial with the court with this. You could hear them on, on tape saying, oh, wow, there's weed in here. And then, like, meaning they found it, meaning there was no probable cause. Like, you didn't smell weed. There's nothing for you to search my car, but you found it after you searched it. So technically, that's unconstitutional. Uh, well, you know, supposedly. But nevertheless, they found it. And then when I ended up going to court about it, they lied on the stand and said, oh, no, we smelled it as we approached the car. Even though it wasn't over on tape and, and the, you know, the judge is going to believe, you know, you have your officer suit on and all that jazz. So you look very honorable. So therefore, they just you know believed it. And then I still had to fight the case for being charged with the flower. But they decided to count every brownie as weed. Mind you, I could carry legally 15 ounces. So I had seven ounces of flour. I had two dozen brownies. If you count it with actual weed that's in there, you know, I still had about eight, nine ounces, way below my 15 ounce limit. I have about four ounces to spare for five, six ounces. But when you weigh each brownie, the cocoa, the egg, the oil, you weigh everything as weed, that took me from having nine ounces to like 72 ounces of cannabis. Therefore, charged me with possession with attempt to deliver. So as that case is going, well, I'm still thinking, well, there's no way that this is going to stick. Just got to go through the motions, you know, hire attorney, or, you know, it's still, you know, take my car, take these things from me as I'm you know, going through the court, going through these cases, I'm still operating. I'm still operating my collective and got another car, keeping it moving. I'm pretty sure this case is going to just, you know, get dismissed. So before that case can even get settled, we get raided. <laughs> so <laughs> we get raided, we get raided, and we get raided because, mind you, this is more of a collective office style. And you couldn't really come into our, think of it like a dentist's office where you come in, there's like a receptionist and you got to check in. And then before you can go into like, you know, the back door, in order to come in and to become a member of our caregiver group, you had to have a caregiver card or a patient card, ID, uh, proof that the state cashed your check. Because if the state cashed your check, that means that you were approved. Your doctor paperwork was approved. 
because anyone could make up fake, you know, paper doctor work. But if the state cashed it, because we couldn't call because HIPAA laws, you can't call the doctor. But hey, you know, is this you know valid? So we had to go off of what the state, you know, approved or not. So the cop came in with a fake ID, a fake medical marijuana card, a fake cashier's check that was cash. Actually, it was a real cashier's check from someone else is evidence. So when we called the number for the cashier's check, it said, yes, this was cash. So we called that. He signed our agreement to join our collective, which was, you know, you agree, you know, this is only for personal use. You're not going to resell it. And this is for medical use. And you're not going to do anything funny with it. You're not going to try to find an influence. So we had an agreement as well. Um, so he did all that, joined and made a couple donations to the club. Because at the time, by law, a caregiver could receive compensation for assisting a patient. And that's how everybody opened up between 2008 and really around 2016 was based upon that. A caregiver assisting a patient. Now, I'm limited to who I can grow for. I'm limited to how much I could possess. But we have a room of, say, five caregivers. Everyone can have, you know, 15 ounces. Or, you know, if all caregivers are kind of bud tenders, they're assisting different patients. So that was kind of how everybody got started. It was a natural, robust medical market. And naturally regulated um, because it was, it was a lot of competition. At one point in Detroit, there was over 300 stores just in the city of Detroit. Put that in perspective, there's maybe 300 in the state right now. So there's 300 just in the city. So people were getting very snobby at this time. Like you have options now. It's not, you just not like whoever's on my pager. No, this is, you know, there's Weed Master, THC Finder, everybody's finding all that stuff. So he makes a couple buys, natural things. Seven grams here, eighth here, a gram here. He's on record on tape because you know he's undercover. He's acting as a patient the whole time. My back is hurting. All that brownie was really good. Because if you ever, you know, in our collective, it was a no nonsense. If he was like, oh, I'm going to a party. I'm going to hand this to kids. We would have never let you in. So he acted as a patient the entire time. And a month later, he joined in like December. In January, we got raided. Came in, guns blazing. Like AK-47. We actually thought we were being robbed. They came in with ski masks. There was about 10, 12 of them. The building surrounded, kicking in the door, get down, get down, get down. And I think I'm being robbed. And I'm like, oh, man, look at the ski masks and they're all white. I'm like, oh, no, we're not getting robbed. We're getting raided. No pun intended. But I'm just saying, we wasn't getting robbed. I was just like, oh, shit. So, you know, everything's harmless. It's just weed. You know, it's, look, man, it's all good. You can send me a letter, cease and desist. And you got questions. You know, I still think we're in the right because of that clause. A caregiver can assist a patient. We made sure everybody was patient. But the conflict was, it was kind of like, I know you've probably seen the movie, like Eight Mile. A lot of people know about Michigan because Eight Mile, Eminem. On Eight Mile is the dividing line really between different cultures. It's almost like segregation in a, in a certain point where Oakland County was more predominantly richer county, pre- predominantly probably more Republican. And then Wayne County was more Democratic and more of the urban cities. So on the other side of Eight Mile, it's kind of like one side was raining and one side was not. I was on the side where it was raining, apparently. Really was based upon who was the attorney general and who was the prosecutor in that county. Was depending on who was really allowed to operate who got raided. So in Oakland County, they were anti-cannabis and they decided to raid people and let the courts figure it out because their interpretation was a caregiver can only assist the patient. Even though the law said A, and we know the difference between the and A, there's a really big difference. So Got to go to court. So now I'm fighting both cases at that time. And again, I'm still thinking, well, I've got attorneys. You know, again, at this time, you get raided. They, now they take pretty much exhausted me, freeze all my assets, went to my house safe, my brother's house, my brother's safe. At this time, my brother was actually a DPD cop. 
And my brother, actually, the only thing he had to do with this, we were partners in a credit repair business. The business got so big as the collective that I was running, we got two separate suites. So it doesn't smell like cannabis in one of the suites and the other kept it separate. He actually went and signed the lease for me. I didn't have time to go sign a lease. He signed both leases. Because his name was on the lease, they charged him as well. So we have six of us. Now I fight. It's only me fighting the edible case. Well, actually me and the girl I was with. That's two of us. And then now six of us are fighting this dispensary case that we just got you know, raided for. And my brother, he had lost his job. He got suspended without pay. I'm feeling like crap. I'm like, no, this, this is all wrong. So then now it becomes more personal that, wow, this is war on drugs. It's like they're really trying to turn lives upside down. It's like they're almost creating this criminal out of thin air. It's like, it wasn't like there's was enough criminal to go find, like real people who are actually committing things. You're creating people to be criminals. And I didn't want to be a statistic. I didn't just want to be another black man, went to jail, coming back out, going back to jail. Because that, that's, that's not, I don't believe in all that. So I'm continuing to fight the cases. I end up going to trial, losing the trial in the edible case because I thought it was going to be clean cut. They decided because I was over my limit, and this is early case law, I was making case law. Because I was over my limit, they said I couldn't use medical marijuana as my defense. Even though in the law, it does say if you're over your limit, you still have an affirmative defense where you could explain yourself as to why you're over your limit. So I wasn't really over my limit, but you're counting brownies as we, I still could explain, well, that's because there's brownies and there's cocoa in there. Therefore, that's how I'm over my limit. Case dismissed. No, they said I can't even mention medical marijuana. I'm going to be treated just as a regular marijuana drug dealer went to trial and all the evidence, they blacked out all the words that said medical marijuana because everything was packaged. Everything was labeled. So they made a motion for if we said the word medical marijuana to the jury, they were going to do a mistrial and put my attorney in contempt. So we couldn't even say the word medical marijuana. So we're dancing around, you know, does this really seem right to you? Why is there black marks on the evidence? But at the end of the day, and I also had a patient log of what the patient was doing. So when they, when they came back, you know, I could say, all right, how was this? How was that? They saw the law, they saw the marijuana, and they're just like, well, that's possession with intent to deliver, found guilty. And that was my first time ever going to trial, first anything on my record, and they threw me in jail right away. Not bond, you know, waiting until sentencing, because the other case that was going on, you know, making me look like I was this career, <laughs> like, criminal. So I went to trial because I also would have an automatic right to appeal with the Brownie case. So I ended up appealing that case, and I actually won the appeal. They said I can go back to trial and be able to say, you know, and have the firm defense to explain a reasonable amount of cannabis that I had. But they also said that any form of marijuana that is not really dry flour is considered unusable. Therefore, it is treated just as marijuana, not medical marijuana. So if your grandmother had a tincture, say a 16-ounce bottle of Kool-Aid that was infused, your grandmother now is going to be charged with a pound because of my case, and that became case law. So I had an option to selfishly just go back, though, to trial, get this off my record, call this a day, or I would have to take it to Supreme Court to actually get that ruling undone that affected the entire community. And, you know, at this point, it became it was more than just having a business to support my lifestyle, to go do what I want to do. Now it became I was really engraved in this. I was engulfed in this movement. Like, this isn't right. This is wrong. I'm sitting in court all the time. I'm seeing people in there like cattle. I'm like, dog, this is just a business. 
And these people logic, someone has to, you know, do it. So not just, you know, the faith that I have, I believe gave me the strength to be able to keep fighting through this. So I took it to Supreme Court. Supreme Court ended up not taking the edible case because they created legislation. They created legislation. It was such an uproar about it. They created legislation to actually rechange the law to count edibles as marijuana. But when they did legislation, it didn't change my case. So I still had to go back and actually go like to court and like fight this case. That case went on for like eight years. I actually overstayed my probation. My attorney said it was, but because I already went to jail and technically I was served. And also my sentence was the jail sentence, which was like 35 days in jail and five years probation. Usually you make it a year probation too. Oh no, they're, they're sticking to me. So I already outlived my five years probation this entire time. Couldn't consume. I had to go, you know, piss test here and there, doing all this stuff every single day, going through this. While if I got in trouble while I was on five years, oh man, I would have been, you know, throw away the key. So, but the whole time, eight years later, you know, we're going back. I'm going, no, let's go back to trial. Let's go. Let's go to trial. Because you can't do nothing to me. I already been sentenced and I already served it. And then it ended up making a very, like, you know what? We're just going to offer you this ticket. And at this time, I was like, wow, really? The reason why you guys don't want me to go to trial right now is because you really can't do nothing to me. And then now you're just going to offer me this little, like, ticket. And then, of course, economically, you know, my pride is like, no, I'm going to go fight. But the terms like, listen, man, you know it's going to cost. Da, 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 da. Take this ticket. You know, it's not going to be, you know, on your record. This, this, and that. Just take it. So I ended up taking a ticket on that case and then had to still fight the history case. That case ended up getting dismissed based upon entrapment. So many attorneys later, hundreds of thousands of dollars, broke just hustling to get through this. It got based upon entrapment because that cop entrapped us because, again, we have to make sure your firm of defense is also to make sure that it was, it was medical use. So therefore, that cop was going to take a stand and say, actually, I'm not a real patient. It wasn't for medical use. So you really entrapped us from even having a defense of why we were serving you. Yeah. So at that point, we got that dismissed based upon that. But then guess what? The prosecutors appealed it. So we had to go to appeals court on that case. They overturned it and said entrapment wasn't a reasonable ruling. So then we had to go appeal that to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court decided not to hear the case. So now we went all the way back to circuit court to refight the case. And this is another six years later, uh, fighting that case. And at that time, it was just, if you kept fighting, at the end of the day, they offer you a certain, and the offer came to where all the other defendants pretty much will just not get charged if me, who's called, you know, the leader, again, took a civil infraction. And it was just like, all right, now it's not just about me. I can't just have them because everyone stuck together. They were following my lead. I was like, all right, I'll take the civil infraction and let's just keep this thing moving. Because at this point, I mean, I'm already down and out. So, yeah, so then that ended. Then while all this was still going on, I was low-key still operating. Now that the case is over, I guess I can say this out loud. Uh, <laughs> Like this is still getting recorded. I know Zoom said something about that. But yeah, I had to, you know, had, I mean, how else was I? I was pretty much thrown in the woods, pretty much naked, right? I had no resources. My cars were gone. They raided all my houses, even went to my parents' houses uh, because I got them a house for Christmas one year. I'm not like a basketball, big ball of money, but you know, a reasonable house, you know, got them something. Uh, they ended up losing, you know, forfeit, all this stuff. And, you know, as a cool, I want to be a great, you know, son. They ended up going to the house that my name's on the mortgage. I put a, a gun in my mom's face talking about your son's a drug dealer. And to this day, and my mom actually is bipolar and schizophrenic. So to this day, she actually does not answer the door. 
And that is another thing that fueled me to keep trying to really, you know, fight. So this doesn't happen to, you know, another person who's trying to really get into the industry, whether young, black, rich, poor, it's just, it's still not morally fair and equitable. So I'm not saying this to be like a woe's me type of story, but this is just kind of, you know, what happened. So I was still operating and I ended up actually kind of still expanding to where I had like two different locations. And then the city in 2016 started to come in and regulate all those 300 stores in the city of Detroit. So all these things are just like little, I call them like left balls, like just coming out of anywhere. I'm just like, dog, really? Ray, really? Pulled over? All right. Court case? All right. Really? The city now is going to regulate by zoning. Now, thankfully, the city didn't come in and just raid everybody, like Oakland County, because I, I moved. So when that all happened, I moved from one side of the rain to where it wasn't raining. I moved to, to 8 Mile, and that's where kind of everyone naturally migrated there because of all the raids. And that city was kind of more cannabis friendly. So, yeah, so I end up, when a city came in and regulated it, I end up only having one store that fit the green zone. Because you had to be a thousand feet from a church, a thousand feet from a school, you know, a thousand feet from a park. And there's more parks in Detroit than you thought. Like, that's not a park, that's a field. It's not even like, it's not even a playground. What are you talking about? But anyway, so that naturally, and there's churches everywhere. There's more, there's like churches and liquor stores everywhere in Detroit. And you had to be a thousand feet from a liquor store. So that naturally limited the real estate in Detroit. But thankfully, no, by the grace of God, I had a location that was in the industrial zone that, that met it. All right, so now, now you got to fight through the whole city regulations. Like, all right, you know, you 20000 for this, 15000 to fix this, air quality's got to be this, the architect got to cause this, the city application's costing this, attorney's costing this. Now, man, you know what's being rich in this industry. Like, everything is going right back into the whole, like, scenario. So then I finally ended up getting a city license, 2018. And then the state came in, and they legalized medical marijuana commercially and, and for adult use. And they decided they're going to be the ones that actually license stores. So your city license doesn't mean shit because <laughs> the state. So now you got to go you went through all of that. And then it's like, oh, all right. So the state requirements, though, oh, that's just it knocked out 99 percent of operators. One of them, you had to show three hundred thousand dollars of finances clean. You know, you could not be like, I got three hundred thousand dollars in this duffel bag. What's up? Can I no clean financially? Then you couldn't have a criminal record. You could not have a felony within the last 10 years. You couldn't have a misdemeanor in the last five years. So, and that's kind of, I already went to court. So that kind of, you know, and actually during this time, I was still fighting court, actually. So I had one felony that was still on there that I still had to get overturned because of the first you know, case and I had the misdemeanor and then I got the whole charge. So there's no way I'm going to be able to be the applicant here for this state license. And so I had to, I had to show the capitalization, the criminal background, and then the financial. And then of course you had to have the real estate. So nevertheless, what was me? Ask yourself, well, how can I still do this? Right? Not how, there's a lot of things why I can't, but how can I? So you start asking that question, things started, you know, all right, you know what? Partner with someone, and then they fit the qualifications. I could be a very highly paid employee. I could still own the lease to cover my ass just in case, you know, they try to do something. I can always operate it. And plus, this person doesn't really know how to run a store anyway. So I ended up finding that person. He was a Retired tax attorney, TPA, had the money in his 401k. He was a tax attorney for Ford Motor Company. Very good guy. Put him on an application. You know, we go through that. I'm still helping pay the, you know, the, there's another hundred grand just to get to the seat here for the state. And the state had a board at the time. The board was five people. And you had to get your application in. And then the board had to approve you. Wink, wink. You know, like, you know, you got to really get, it's not getting political. Like, who knows the people on the board here? 
But, you know, with the CPA, you know, he's like, oh, no, we're, we'll be good. Tax attorney helped fill out the application. We get denied because they could deny you. Even though you qualify, they had the ability to deny you based upon character. Like, who's judging people's character? I didn't know Moses or Jesus was on the board, but apparently, you know, we're getting, you know, judged on character. The partner who I did partner with ended up having a 21-year-old domestic dispute on his record that he did not fully disclose properly to them. And they denied it based upon that, even though it didn't disqualify him. And it was a personal matter that, you know, he did not really want to, you know, talk about. And they denied it based upon that. And I'm out in the open. I have my city license to be able to operate temporarily. And if I kept operating, now I'm about to get raided by the state police. So I had to shut down and pretty much walk away from that. I was like, this is like the Tom Brady, a Patriots versus Seahawks, Russell Wilson, one-yard line. All you got to do is hand the ball off, score a touchdown, and you win the Super Bowl. All I had to do was get this license. And you're talking about millions just right there. You know, I didn't even have to operate. I'm now that entrepreneur that I'm on this level. I got here, but through an interception. And then now, game's over. The Patriots win the Super Bowl. The Seahawks lose. You should have. They threw the pass. And that's how it felt, man. I felt like I lost the Super Bowl. I was on a one-yard line. And then I had to reinvent myself. And that's where the private club came in. And the private club became, I really felt like if I had a community with me throughout all these different court cases, I never had a partner. I'm out solo this entire time, just learning as I go as an entrepreneur and reading a lot of books, podcasts, seminars, trying to fine tune my entrepreneurial skills. And yeah, I really feel like if I knew other attorneys in the industry, if I knew other partners, other people, I I kept to myself. Um, I was very low key, especially going through court. It wasn't flashing. I really had nothing to flash. Everything was gone. But I felt like if I had a community around me of like-minded people, that it would have been different. And that kind of where the private club came in, called the Craft Cannabis Club, to get like-minded people together who are either in the industry or looking to get in the industry to kind of fine-tune each other and to help each other grow, share resources and information. And then another brand came out of this as well, which was called Tiggity, which was an online therapeutic journal. And the journal was because if anyone ever was to come in to the collective and ever try to say that they were not using it for medical use, I had a journal that you submitted how cannabis actually helped you. Hello, just want to take a quick moment to thank my sponsor and full disclosure, my company, Restart CBD. Restart CBD is a brand that I built with my sister, so we are family-owned and women-owned. We do operate a brick and mortar in Austin, so if you ever find yourself in Central Texas, we'd love for you to come say hi. But we also ship nationwide, and we carry a wide range of CBD products. We really care about this plant. We really care about educating our customers. This show would not be possible without their support. So please go check us out at restartcbd.com and use code to be blunt for $5 off your next purchase. Thanks. And let's go back to the show. Then it became like, well, it's a lot more than just trying to cover yourself for that. It was just like, well, Anika Sativa is such a whack system. It doesn't really tell you how a plant's going to make you feel. It's fake news. Like, really, each plant is so unique. You really need, like, one-on-one feedback and kind of like a Netflix scenario where everyone's kind of giving us feedback and there's maybe this, like, algorithm that says, well, nine out of ten people are recommending cannabis based upon this mood and this effect. 
They recommend it for sleep, recommend it for sex, recommend it for passion, recommend it for getting focused, recommend it for pain relief. So you got 10 different options with the Tiggity. What's the Tiggity? Tiggity came about because I saw a DEA list of all the names they call marijuana, like Swag, Trees, Kush, Grin Crack. Some of those are just strain names, but OG Kush. And I saw the name Tiggity. I'm like, what the hell called weed Tiggity? Like, like, I've literally never heard that <laughs> weed before, ever. <laughs> like, you know, you got some Tiggity? And then it kind of reminded me of Giggity, Giggity, Giggity from like yeah. um, Family. So I was like, oh, I love that name. So I was like, well, I'm going to call this Tiggity. What's the Tiggity? So yeah, that was the, the goal behind that. Yeah. And then a private club, we operate. And then now um, I got in, we're doing like hemp boxes where we ship hemp boxes called Craft Cannabis Club. So cannabis is also hemp as well. So we ship hemp boxes where we go to other businesses that have hemp products and we help put them in our boxes. So every single month they get about three to four different items and we curate and make sure because there's a lot of bad hemp products out there. There's you know gas stations selling hemp that not really hemp or could be oregano or CBD that's not really CBD. So we just kind of do all the curating for you. So for like you know a certain amount a month, you get in like you save 25 bucks a month on vice. So like 50 bucks a month, you get 75 hours worth of stuff and you get to be able to trust what's getting through people who actually have vetted what's going in there. So we kind of take the guesswork out of cannabis. So, and that's kind of because, you know, shipping, you can't just ship cannabis around state lines. And then the private club is in position, hopefully now because adult use here is in Michigan. I'm hoping to get back into the game as an entrepreneur with a consumption license or a micro business. But in the meantime, because I'm taking what the law has given me, you know, people can gather in a private residence and be able to conjugate. People can consume in a private residence and people can gift cannabis to each other in a private residence as well. So that's kind of how we kind of operate now with the hope of becoming officially licensed as a consumption lounge. So, yeah. And then, you know, from the growing experience, from starting off as a grower, I noticed that a lot of the conferences are about big major growths, commercial growths, you know, 10,000 plants, 15,000 plants. I'm just like, what about the home growers who just want to grow four plants? Damn. Like, why? so I felt like there needed to be, and then a lot of these states now becoming legalized are not really allowing home grow, which like, wait a minute, we all should be able to, you know, grow on our own. This is not, it's first about stopping people from getting arrested, prosecuted, and their assets forfeited over this damn plant. And getting people out of jail who went to jail for this plant. And then people should be able to grow it on their damn own. It's a plant. I still want to regulate it like tomatoes. But nevertheless, I decided to do a homegrown kind of membership course and summit that teaches people how to grow elite cannabis, elite clean cannabis right at home. Because not everyone where the states go legal can get access to it. Some of them, you know, may live in the boonies or live in different areas. Or who knows, if it still takes two, three years, even when it comes legalized, you can start getting access to it. But you can start growing your own right away. So that's where the homegrown weed summit where we got together 45 different growers like Danny Danko, Ed Rosenthal, Tommy Chong came on there. A lot of different, you know, egg growers, a lot of people uh, were standing on shoulders of giants who were early in this industry, come together, teaching us how to grow elite cannabis at home. And then I'm going to start a membership in a course, just teaching people my methods. And not just my methods better than your method. You know, this is not, you know, big thing versus little thing here. It's just, this is how I grow. This is how it comes out my way. So, yeah. So, yeah, all those things kind of came into that. So, yeah. You have such a powerful story and obviously you lived it. So like you telling it, it's like, I can just feel the passion that you have for obviously just like entrepreneurship kind of first and foremost 
definitely applied into the cannabis industry because that's really what you kind of started like sinking your teeth into. And it's just, I'm just grateful that you're able to speak on this from such a positive manner. I can't imagine again, going through something like that and just what a pioneer you are, not only just in your state, but just as a voice for this plant. I think Part of the joy for me of having these podcast interviews is getting to learn from other people what is going on as cannabis kind of transitions from the black, the gray kind of mystery into the light. And I mean, you shared a lot. I want you to kind of go back and kind of highlight what is the time frame for when that happened? Because I didn't really know that Michigan was medical kind of that early on and also didn't realize some of the parameters that you highlighted around the caregiver program. I think that that's really unique that people didn't really didn't slash don't really know was a thing in Michigan. And then moving through till kind of present day, what is current cannabis law? I mean, what little I know about Michigan it does seem like Michigan is a little bit more on the forefront of cannabis in the sense that I think Michigan is the only state, comma, was the first state. I think California and Florida now have programs, but you mentioned taking a course. I think Michigan was the first state to offer like credible cannabis courses and education through universities. And so there's obviously this industry that's established in your state that is trying to take cannabis very seriously and provide this pathway for people to get into the industry. But it's also very tainted with so much nuance and challenge that it's like, I wish we didn't have to go through that bullshit to get to present day where it's probably being more celebrated and welcomed But it's unfortunately part of, I think, what you start to realize when you obviously peel back the curtain with cannabis. It's like people had to lose some shit to come out on the other end. And you're, again, obviously a testimony of that resilience. And it sounds like you are a faith-driven man. I'm very spiritual myself. And I feel very blessed that God has put me on this planet in this particular day and age to see the transition of cannabis go from again, this like very stigmatized plant to major celebrities and brands are trying to get in on the industry. But again, it's that transition of like, whoa, this was not cool or this was not legal or this was persecuted to now. Well, shit, like people are, you know, celebrated and building great businesses on top of it. And like, how can we as, as individuals who want a piece of that kind of get in on that? So again, to kind of like sum it up, I'm just curious what the time frame was from when you first got in the industry to when like the year you got arrested the first time to when things transitioned in the Supreme court to what year did Michigan go full medicinal to full wreck? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. In, in 2008, we became full medicinal. That was a caregiver patient model. And then out of that became obviously the question, well, if I don't know a caregiver, how am I going to get product? And if I don't know how to grow, how do I do that? So it was a natural organic market that just came about. And the state still was making you know, four or five million a year just on licensing fees as a caregivers and patients. And, and the program may have even cost them maybe a million 
and they had like a four or five million dollar profit just on that. So it was going well. And then the commercial side of things, they noticed the commercial side of things is started picking up and then the court cases. So around 2016, the state started to come in and actually regulate the commercial side because it wasn't technically as black and white now because the attorney general at the time, Shudi, poked holes in the entire medical marijuana law to where it was just like, well, now you couldn't really, could you operate commercially? Could you not? Before it was clear. Now you made it so murky and different, all these different court cases. Then people started to lobby to try to make it a little bit more clear. No one wanted to get raided anymore. So, so that's when it got into state legislation, but you had to be careful what you wish for. Because once it became regulated by the state, they set such high barriers to entry, it weeded out those early entrepreneurs around 2016 to 2018. So 2010 is when I got involved. So 2008, it became medical. 2009 is when I started reading. But 2010, you know, I actually you know, I had to grow, get a harvest, it took some time, and then start the, the business. And then I took it didn't take that long to get a court case. At the end of 2010, <laughs> was the first case in 2011. So, and then from 2010 to really 2018, and really almost 19, I was fighting court cases while still trying to stay in this business. And then, so then when the city started regulating it in around 2015, 2016, and then the state came in with their own regulations, because there's a lot of different counties in 2000 that were cool, like like Ann Arbor. I mean, you guys may have heard of Ann Arbor, like Uville, Michigan town very forward, progressive area. So a lot of these different counties were still doing it, but there's still a lot of money being made. So the state need, needed to come in and get their taxes. Understood. But the barrier to entry is where it kind of rubbed people the wrong way. So the medical side. So then, and then we started to lobby for adult use. So um, adult use almost got to vote um, in 2016. Tell short because of some signature, blah, blah, blah. But nevertheless, in like 2018, ended up getting back on the ballot, got approved. And then the state had like a year to come up with the program. So 2016, 2017, the state started to regulate commercially medical cannabis. But prior to that, for about eight years, there was a natural, organic caregiver patient model. And then the state came in to regulate commercial medical in 2016, 2017. And then 2018, we want adult use, which took about a year or two for them to regulate the adult use. So then now in 2019, you have the medical program in Michigan that still existed, totally separate from the adult use program that now came in. Totally different rule sets, totally two different markets. With the medical program, you still could not go into a medical store unless you had a medical card. But if you had an adult use license store, you could take both. So by default, a lot of the medical providers end up reapplying for a adult use license as well. So but the adult use side of things, they made it a little bit more social equitable. There's now social equity provisions in there. It was cute social equitable. It didn't do anything. I mean, you can give us discounts on applications, fees, but we first got to be able to get the application in. And then we got to still find the property, have capitalization to be able to get into that. So it looked good on paper. Okay. And then they were not going to count marijuana arrests against your character. So things like that started to get into play. But it still wasn't far to give people like me an opportunity to truly apply and get a state license. So now today, they're still continually trying to improve the adult use side of things. But until we really get capital to support those who have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs, not just black and brown, but even low income people, period, who were affected 
got felonies on their on their records, families turned upside down, now in, in a position, well, yeah, I want maybe I've been doing this on the street, on the side hustle. How can I get from that street hustle to a legal state hustle? It's gonna need to be some kind of something to fill that gap. And it doesn't have to be capitalization, and it doesn't have to be education as well on how to operate these different type of businesses. So some type of incubator. Uh, some of these are now kind of coming to play. But until, again, even at the end of the incubator, you can still know how to do the business plan. Maybe they give you some more discounts from the attorney. You're still going to need money, though, to be able to get that building, at least a half million, no matter what you're doing. Uh, whether it's a grow, whether it's a processing center where you're making products, whether it's a retail store. Uh, those are three different licenses. You can also be a transportation company. That's the fourth. Or you can open up a lab. But any of those, maybe 300000 if you're you know, trying to be very, very, very budget friendly. But you need at least a half million to really operate in this Michigan scenario. So we are bent forward, but now they're trying to, I guess, not undo some things to where, all right, now you're trying to get us back in the industry, but you just took us out. Like, like all right, I mean, recognize that right, we were already here. You could have just allowed us to naturally, you know, migrate into the medical market. Work with them and provide assistance in navigating it and learn from the businesses who are already established. And instead, it's like they cut your legs off and they kind of pushed you to the side. And they're like, let's start over with this new group of people who doesn't have the experience. It's really heartbreaking to hear and learn about it, but it's not uncommon, right? I just think these stories don't get shared as much as they should be. I don't know if you know this about Texas, but we still do not have a proper medical program. We are very limited. It is 0.5% Delta 9 THC is legal. And where it sounds like similar to Michigan, we're a two-year legislative state. To access 0.5, you have to have epilepsy. Then they expanded it to incurable diseases. We just finished our legislative session. We were hoping to increase from 0.5 to 5%. They did not do that. They increased to 1%. We were hoping it would add chronic pain, PTSD. It ended up adding PTSD, but not chronic pain. And so it's like, oh, we're inching forward, but you know, two steps forward, 10 steps backwards. And then there was another bill that they introduced that was on penalties, reducing penalties because Texas, very similarly, it is a felony for you to have over a certain amount. And because they weigh it based on the concentration of it, meaning if it's the weight of the chocolate, the eggs, the milk, the whatever, it's no, it doesn't matter. It only has, you know, quarter of a gram in it. It's the weight of that brownie then. And oh, by the way, if you put those edibles you got in Colorado in a glass jar and they come and they raid your house. Oh, by the way, now that whole jar is going to be weighed against you. And so it's just this very like, what? Like it doesn't really make sense. And in Austin, we are a little protected. Austin decriminalized based on, it's not formally decriminalized at the legislation level, but it's like the city council told the police department, we are not going to take your personal possession marijuana cases. So don't bring them to us. So it's like, it's legal, but not really legal, but you're decrim. So if you have it, you're kind of fine, but I feel bad for the rest of Texas. And it just seems like people have to get reprimanded, unfortunately, so very significantly. So for them to learn oh, maybe we should actually change the law. Like, oh, maybe we should actually, especially in your case where 
the law said you could have up to a certain amount of the actual flour. There was no specifications on if it was in a baked good or not. So by law, you were legal, but their interpretation, unfortunately, put you in a compromising position. And that's just something that I try to highlight for the listeners of just like trying to navigate the industry. There's so many nuances state to state. You highlighted it too, city to city and having a really good understanding. I guess kind of a question for you is, you know, you had to work with legal teams to manage and navigate all of this. When you were dealing with that, was that something that you were like, when you were kind of operating, like, I got to make sure I have a lawyer who knows what I'm doing when you set up your business? Or did that kind of come as like an, oh shit, now I've got to be reactive And I'm asking because like in our world now presently, like speaking in 2021, kind of best practices, you should have a lawyer, right? And even better practices, you should have a lawyer who understands cannabis law. So I'm wondering if at the time that you're going through this in like 2010, did you have a lawyer who was cannabis knowledgeable? Like what was that like going up against your state, trying to really challenge the law that they had and get through those little nuanced details? Sure. That, that's actually a great question. And the answer is no. I mean, mind you, I've never had a record. So I, I never, you know, attorney, maybe attorney to help file a, like a LLC or something like that, but not a criminal attorney that's like defending murders and crack and weed. Like I never, I never would have thought of that. So I actually, when I first got arrested, you know, and, and got charged, who I actually leaned to, because I, I was coaching youth football. I was coaching youth flag football, mentoring the youth, end up losing that whole scenario because of this. But I coached one of the kids. One of the kids I coached, father was an attorney. And that's who I asked. And even at the time in 2010, there wasn't a lot of case law. So it wasn't really attorneys that were specializing in cannabis the way it is now, or was a, a lot of information for them to go off of. So even when they fought the medical cases, they were fighting it as like more cocaine or other drug cases. Not understanding the argument of medical, because honestly, I've switched. I have maybe 16 different attorneys. And what we know now, like the attorney that I ended up with, Michael Kumar, who is I mean, just a true fighter to the death, love him as a brother, he loves me. Like we're friends. Like we're eventually we'll end up being partners in business. That's like how like close we got to this whole thing. But I had to go through so many different attorneys, attorneys that just want you just to take a plea. Uh, just go ahead, you know, take a plea. Give me five grand. I'll work out a plea for I'm like, plea for what? For edibles? We're talking like, like in Allen, and like Allen Iverson's like practice. Practice? You're talking about practice? Because, you know, I don't know if you're a sports fan or not, but they, they give them crap about like missing practice or something like that. It was just like practice is not even a game. We're talking about practice. I'm talking about edibles, bro. Not even, not crack, not murder. We're talking about edibles. That's what I'm getting charged for. And so under the guise of, not even the guise, but under the understanding that it's medical yeah. and medical yeah. is legal in the state. It's like, I what am. are you talking about? I'm not doing this behind your door. I'm giving you paperwork. I have all the checks and balances. Like maybe yeah. I misinterpreted my bad, but like also here's my paperwork. I'm giving medicine to people. Like, geez. I got a, web, I got a website, business cards. Yeah. Underground drug dealer right now is trying to be out here with a business card with his name on it, with a location and a phone number. Like, it doesn't make sense. Yes. So, yeah, I did not. But, yes, hindsight, yes. I mean, I think everybody understands that kind of, I guess, now is like when you get into the business, you have a cannabis-specific attorney 
that's good in your area in your maybe locally is best as well because it does vary from city to city and that's really what a rubber meets the road is honestly where change has to happen when you mentioned earlier in certain cities where things are now getting decriminalized it's that city prosecutor like that city prosecutor in the day is going to be like no i don't want these cases and then the cops are going to be like well i'm not going to waste my time trying to create this case and do all this paperwork if it's not going to end up being nothing. So therefore, even though it's still illegal, there, it's just there, it's not high on their level. So it's really the rubber meets the road at that city level and then the county level and then the state level. But and then, of course, now we don't want we want to worry about, you know, who's in the White House. It's not, man, who's affecting your house? Your house is at the city level. And that's where a lot of change has to happen, especially when it comes to voting. Like, we never look at who the city prosecutors are or what, what they stand for. Who, what are the judges standing for? Like, are they progressive towards cannabis? Are they just anti? Are they like trying to throw the book at people for uh, marijuana possessions? Like, where do they stand? For? We never ask those questions. We want to know who the president is. All we know is Trump and Biden. But you circle a bunch of other stuff, didn't even know who they were. And you may send your son, not just you, your son, your daughter, your cousin, your friend could be sitting in front of that judge one day for a marijuana charge and you voted for him just because you just closed your eyes. So, yeah, it comes down at the local level and understanding what they stand for as far as what your beliefs are. What a powerful testimonial and story. My heart just goes out to Earl for all the hardships he's had to endure at the expense of championing cannabis in his home state. And a lot of lessons learned for those of us who are choosing to want to dig deeper into the industry. So some food for thought is, how does this resonate with you? How does this leave you feeling? Do you feel afraid or cautious at how to move forward with cannabis in your city or state? Or do you feel empowered to take on the law should you be confronted? It's a real question we should all be frank with ourselves on. While we are representing just a plant, it's obviously steeped in stigma and regulation. And even if something is legal, there could be unforeseen loopholes we have to navigate. So be safe and stay cautious, my friends. I'll be back next week with another episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. Bye, y'all. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadaturabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadaturabi.com.